I want to show you something that's so important to me, and that is the uh, Bible doctrine. You see, the importance of Bible doctrine rests in the fact that God speaks to us through His Word. That's why Bible doctrine is important. To accurately understand Scripture is to accurately hear His voice. But here's another one. Bible doctrine is important because God sanctifies you and I by His Word. Accurately understood. You say that again. God sanctifies you and I by His Word. The Word you hold in your lap is what cleanses you from all unrighteousness because you continually submit yourself to it. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word, God, is truth. John 17, 17. So God's voice, and I like to say it this way, speaks clearest when doctrine is purest. God's voice speaks clearest when doctrine is purest. But to listen to bad theology is to listen to foreign voices that is not of God. Now because of this, and for many other reasons of course, I have realized that just how crucial it is for us to employ expository teaching, verse upon verse, chapter after chapter, phrase after phrase, through, from the beginning to the end of a book. It's better said, it's important for us to draw out of Scripture, exegete from Scripture, the author's original intent. How many of you are interested in hearing from God? Can we see a show of hands? Okay. Let me just start here. That many people believe that God is going to speak to them in multiple ways other than through Scriptures. In other words, they first are looking for voices outside of Scriptures because I guess it's easier. And number two, I guess um, that way you can kind of come up with what the voice is saying. <laughs> you listen to it, right? You can kind of like allow the voice to say whatever you feel is what you want to hear right now. But if your hand went up a moment ago and you're saying, Jacques, I want to hear from God. Well, the first and foremost, most basic understanding of the voice of God is the Word of God. And to accurately divide the Word of God is to accurately and clearly hear the voice of God. This is why doctrine is so important. And to explain the benefit of what I'm talking about here, I would like to use a real-life experience as an example. About two years ago, I happened upon a doctrine. Maybe three years ago. I happened upon a doctrine in search of stability and security to stand upon because I could see how every person was able to make the Scripture say whatever they wanted to say. And I said, God, I actually came to the point where I've decided to not be that person. I am not going to make things say what I wanted to say. I'm not going to take Holy Scriptures and turn it into self-help material or into some kind of pagan idea. And, and so I happened upon doctrine called total depravity. And I want to just give you this as an example, okay? Um, because I think many people go through the same process I did. Now, total depravity is also known by different terms, like, for instance, radical corruption. Radical corruption. And really, the idea with total depravity or radical corruption is simply this. 
You were made in the image and the likeness of God. God makes no junk. And you were made perfect in Adam. The only problem is Adam, your representative, he went and submitted himself to his deceived wife. And he himself was deceived because she was deceived. Together they sinned and fell into sin became slaves to sin. And when that happened, it wasn't insignificant. It was way more significant than what we assume these days. And so, because these days, sins is not, is basically mistakes, right? Oh, I made another mistake. No, you sinned. Um, no, but they don't, I didn't hurt anybody. No, you sinned against God. That's why something is a sin, because it's against God. It's a violation of His character, and you are supposed to be a reflection of Him. And since you are reflecting something other than perfect holiness, you are now reflecting sin, you are violating His image here on the earth. It's a sin against God. Every sin is a sin against God. And so <clears throat> it wasn't a trivial thing that happened. Sin entered in like yeast. And it filtered throughout the whole, the whole lump. Right? So every part of who I am now was tainted by that very yeast, by that sin. For instance, and I'm just telling you the doctrine of total depravity. For instance, um, let me just go through what has been touched by it. Man's body wears out. Adam and Eve were supposed to live forever. No, but they died. Why? Their body wore out due to sin. Sin touched their body. They were radically corrupted. Instead of eternal li in living eternally, they now became, they went back to dust. I mean, that's pretty radical. Man's mind was now at enmity with God. We, we started thinking like God's enemies all the time. We started seeing Him as enemies of ours. Romans 8, 7, Colossians 1, 21. Man's desires was scrambled. Instead of desiring only good, man was now interested to good and evil, the knowledge of both. So now man's desires were divided. Man now started desiring sinful flesh. Man was and is naturally now repelled by God's perfect righteousness because he is now fallen. He is now repelled by God's perfect righteousness. Instead, he now loves not God, but his own sin. So his love toward God was now swallowed up in his love for darkness, sin, and the flesh. So this doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption just simply means not that you are as bad as you possibly could be. No, but that every part of who you are has been touched by sin in one way or another. That's all it means. People leave churches over this thing right here. But I want to show you what they're missing out on. Because many people want to say, well, I'm not that bad. Well, no, radical corruption or total depravity doesn't say you are as bad as you possibly could be. Now, you could be, you have the potential of being a Hitler, but you're not a Hitler, right? Every one of us, if we just let ourselves go, we can start spinning out of control 
And we can give ourselves to stuff where, where the whole entire earth now controls us. Whether it be a plant or, or you, know, you know what I mean. I mean, you can give yourself to drugs. You can give yourself to other. You can become so broken to the point where you are so enslaved by everything. Now, it's possible to go there, but many aren't there. But that doesn't mean you haven't been touched by sin in every part of who you are. Your hips are still wearing out. Your mind needs to be renewed. Your desires are sometimes for everything that is not good. You love your sin. You hide it. You don't really want to repent from it because you know you're going to do it again. Now, this is part residue of the fallen man in you and I. And that is what it means to be radically corrupted. Man chooses sin because he is now a slave to it. Because man doesn't love God, but rather loves self, loves the world, and he loves the flesh. He now constantly chooses self, the world, and the flesh over choosing God. And that is what happened to us when sin touched all of who we are. I love how Charles Spurgeon said, when somebody, when somebody is shocked at something about you and they're angry at you, don't, don't, don't be angry at them because you're much worse than what they think. <laughs> you really are. You've been radically corrupted. However, when I was initially looking at this doctrine two, three years ago that says I'm totally radically corrupted by sin, I was actually wondering why I need to know this. That thought really came to my mind. I'm like, seriously, actually, it doesn't make me feel good. <laughs> Thanks a lot. How much do I pay you for that, doctor? He's <laughs> like, yeah, you need to lose 20 pounds. All right, thank you. He's the only guy that's allowed to tell you that, <laughs> right? And then you pay him for it. And so here we have something similar. You're like, come to church. And we're like, yeah, you're radically corrupted. Let's receive an offering, you know? <laughs> like, why would I need, why would I want to be part of that? Even if it's true, why do I need to know this about myself? Because what I want to hear is good news. Isn't that what the gospel is? Good news. And that doesn't sound like good news at all. All I want to hear when I turn on the Bible preacher on TV is I want to hear him declaring, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Hear me today. Thus saith God. You're going to make it. That's good news. What I want to hear is, you're the apple of his eye. I know you've experienced a lot of rejection out there, but you're God's, the apple of God's eye. He loves you. That's what I want to hear. That's good news. Uh, what I want to hear is, brother, happy 50th birthday. The greatest days of your life is ahead of you. That's good news. That's what I want to tell you. That's what I want to hear. Your greatest days are ahead of you. I want to hear you're unstoppable. You have what it takes. There's nothing about you that's too broken because God doesn't make defects. God favors you and God's favor will see you through this season of your life. And you will come out of this fire not even smelling like smoke. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what I want to hear because that is good news to my ears. God is on your side who can be against you. Nobody. You're invincible. Come on. That's what I want to hear. It's good news, isn't it? 
You know, you're God's prize. He died just for you. That's all I want to hear. And that is good news. The good news I need to hear preached, not the doctrine of depravity. That stuff doesn't, that doesn't make me feel the same way. And that's bad news to anybody and everybody. However, progressively over the last three years, uh, I realized how scriptures on that very one specific doctrine as my example. Now, there are hundreds of doctrines, right? But this very one doctrine is a good example because it's an experience that I have had personally. This, this doctrine of total depravity became clearer and clearer to me over time. But at first, I must, be, I must be honest with you. I looked at it and I said, heresy. I said, nonsense. I said, I, I, don't, I don't understand how it's good news. I don't understand why it's necessary. I don't understand... Uh, um, you know, why would I need to know this? But as I started understanding it more and more, and I started seeing it actually everywhere, every time I opened up the Bible, it was pointed out to me very clearly. And I realized over time, it started having a positively divine impact upon my life. Positively, positively divine. Thinking, actually, what I thought was really bad turns out to be one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And I want to show you why. And the reason I'm telling you this is because as we go through certain doctrines, you go like, um, okay, whatever. Am I still the apple of his eye? Good. All right, let's go on. <laughs> you know, that's all I want to know. So oftentimes you're going to get to stuff and you go like, well, I don't, I don't. And you know what? It takes time sometimes. It takes time. It really does for whatever reason. Because I assume that anything that grows takes time. And I saw how it's had a positive, a divinely positive impact on my life. For instance, total depravity, this is just what it's done to me. It may have done something else to you. But when I realized that I was radically corrupted, I looked at self through scriptures. And no matter how many good things I've done in my life, how many things I have achieved. I'm a pastor of a church. I mean, it doesn't matter. Those things suddenly added up to nothing in comparison to the fact that the Bible says I'm radically corrupted. I've been touched in every part of who I am by sin. And sin is the cancer that's eating away at everything. And eventually there will be nothing left. And I looked at that, and like that tax collector that went to the temple to worship, with a Pharisee that started beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy upon me, I'm a sinner. Have God mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus responds immediately and he says, this man, he'll go home forgiven, the Pharisee not, because those who humble themselves, those who humble themselves, I will give them grace. And I can tell you something that happened to me through this very doctrine I thought was completely unnecessary is the very thing that actually humbled me. before a perfectly holy and righteous God. Secondly, when I realized, <laughs> scripturally speaking, who I was as part of the human race, radically corrupted, suddenly I realized for the first time very clearly as to the need I have to be saved from my state 
of being totally depraved. And I realized my need for salvation. Many people to this day are struggling to figure out why it is that they need a Jesus to save them, but not just a nice Jesus, but a Jesus that died so ruthlessly on that cross. I mean, that's a high price to pay for somebody this good. But that changed in my understanding, not because I was told I was God's prize. It was because I was shown how radically corrupted I am. And then, not only did it humble me or show me my need for salvation, suddenly when I realized that God did save me in, from that state that absolutely deserves eternal hell and God's wrath for all eternity. That guy right there absolutely deserves nothing good. Yet I got everything good. I got a Savior hanging on a cross dying in my stead. When I realized what he saved me from, I couldn't help but be grateful. I suddenly had a gratitude toward the cross that I couldn't have had without the understanding of total depravity. Most people view how Jesus saved them from their trivial sins. But really, when you realize what your sins are, it makes the world of difference. And suddenly, I had a much, and I've been in the ministry a long time, but I had a much greater level of gratitude I couldn't have otherwise had, had it not been for this doctrine that I initially thought was completely unnecessary. And so, there was something else that happened to me because of that. And that is not just what happened in me, but total depravity started helping me deal with what was happening outside of me. Now, you know, I've had to work on my anger throughout my early years, high school, and, you know, you're kind of like right around the collar, you're always ready to have an argument. But what happened is, that when you understand total depravity, you look at a depraved world and you look at people who are giving themselves to absolute vile things and you look at people who you would view as your enemy in such disagreement with you and you look at people who are so absolutely corrupt all around you throughout all the way to D.C. and you look at the corruption in the world and you look at how people abuse each other and even children and, and you get so angry and you want to become a vigilante and you want to just go and take vengeance on these people. But what total depravity does for you and in you is God's scalpel. And He takes certain things out of you and He puts certain things into you. But what happened to me was I started not being so shocked at the world. Oh, are you kidding me? They allowed their little boy to become a girl? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, you're, you're so... You're so shocked and you just, it's such a scandal. 
everything is such a scandal. How can they? How dare they? Wait a minute. Truthfully, when I started understanding total depravity, I stopped being shocked at people's depravity <laughs> because it became a reality. Fallen man is going to act in a fallen way. And so suddenly, instead of, instead of being so scandalized and shocked by it, I started seeing how my I became under understanding of a fallen world. I started realizing why people act the way they act. I tell you, counsel, counseling, secular counseling is sometimes... You know, if you have to, if you have to constantly being told, okay, you're an onion, and we gotta, we gotta peel layer of psychological babble and layer and layer and layer until we find the core, and then we're gonna find the real root to your problem, and it's always the daddy issue. Wait a minute. So, okay, if I didn't have a daddy issue, I didn't, I didn't need Jesus. Is that what you're saying? No. My point is, sometimes that stuff is so bad because what you need to know is that until the nature changes or the heart changes, which can only be done by God, all of that's really worthless. And so I started understanding <clears throat> people's depravity or people's vile decisions they make. But number five, instead of becoming so angry and aggressive, and criticizing them all day long for everything, I now could look at them as vile as they are and start having compassion on them because I know where that comes from. I'm not saying they're, they're not responsible for their lives and their decisions, no, but I understand them and I know where, it comes, where they come from. I know that, that that's the spots that leopard has. It's because that, that's what a leopard has, spots. And you cannot change it. No matter how many times you unpeel that onion and tell that leopard he has daddy issues, you can't change that until God changes the heart miraculously and gives him a heart of flesh. But then the final thing that was so powerful to me that this doctrine worked through me and worked out in me is the fact that I can now start praying for my enemies instead of just hating on them. If you cannot pray for your enemies... You need to understand total depravity in a greater way. And I thought about, now there are, more, there are more benefits to understanding a doctrine that initially seems like heresy, that initially seems completely unnecessary, and it's the, and it's the doctrine that many people will go like, you know, I'm out of here. I, I, I don't like to hear that. I, 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 I'm not, not valuable. I'm valuable, you know. If, you, if, that's, if that's your point, well then... Okay, all I can tell you is your children will be better off if they understood this because it will bring them to a place of humility. It will bring them to a place of knowing that they need God's salvation for their life. It will bring them to a place of much greater gratitude for what God really did for them because he who minimizes his sin or he who views his sin as small naturally, automatically views his Savior as small. You don't need a big Savior if you don't have any sin. If you know the sin you have... You need a Savior that can take part of that, take, take care of that. So for those who, who want to who deprive their family of that, you know, you need to realize what you're taking away from them. 
their actual true heartfelt gratitude for what God really did for them. To really understand the world, because to me it was pretty clear that there was a there was a working inside of me toward God, and that was humbling me before Him, showing him, showing me my need for Him, and then being grateful toward Him for what He did for me. But so there was a working. This doctrine worked in me toward God, but it also worked in me between me and the world around me to understand why they act the way they do, to have compassion on them instead of just criticism and anger, and then also to be able to pray for my enemies because they're enslaved, they're stuck, they have been blinded, they cannot see. And if you get that, well, you definitely want to pray for them, don't you? Instead of just hating on them. My point with showing you this is that oftentimes we trivialize doctrine because it didn't touch us emotionally, not realizing that it's the actual thing that will change your whole life, but from the heart out. Something I first thought was bad news, completely unnecessary to be taught. But over time, God's truth about Himself and His ways do a work in you that sanctifies you, builds you up in ways you never thought. And with that in mind, wow, with that in mind, <laughs> yeah. What time does church start? Wowzers, okay. As the opening. Let's go to John 1, verse 1, if you don't mind to turn there. John 1, verse 1. We probably... <laughs> I just realized. <laughs> John 1, 1. And let's walk through the opening of this chapter using it as a runway to our actual verses 12 and 13, which I doubt we're going to get to, but which we are focusing on today. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was, past tense, the Word. Therefore the Word pre-existed the creation. In the beginning of all things was, pre-existed the Word. And the Word was with God. That means God's Word coexisted with God Himself. It pre-existed before the creation and coexisted with God Himself. And then it says, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. The Word existed as God Himself. Pre-existed, coexisted, and existed as God Himself. God expresses Himself by means of His words. Like you express your will, He expresses His will. You state it. God uses words to communicate His thoughts. He uses words to communicate His desires. He uses words to, to make promises with and to establish decrees. He uses words to give commandments. He uses words. God's Word is God expressing His divine self. The scripture you hold in your lap today is God expressed to us humans. And I'm telling you that because I want you to honor and value and highly esteem the Word of God that you hold in your hands. The same very Word that pre-existed before creation coexisted with God this same word, John says, was God and therefore is God today and will forever be God expressed to you. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but that which you hold in your lap remains forever. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. Him being the Word, which is Jesus. And apart from Him, Jesus, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Here the Apostle John stresses the fact that before anything was created, Jesus pre-existed. Because without Him, nothing was created. This speaks of His eternality, the eternality of Christ. He is from eternal past to eternal future, uncreated. Verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Christ, the personification of light, was the very light that is responsible for illuminating all of mankind. All of man received light. Verse 5, And the light, in other words, the Christ, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it or overcome it. Verse 6, A man came, and one sent from God, and his name was John. This is John the Baptist speaking of, the prophet that God sent. He sent this prophet to break the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years of divine silence, and God sends this prophet crying in the wilderness, Repent! Make straight the way, for He is coming. Verse 7, He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. You see, God's purpose for sending John the Baptist was so that all might believe because of John's witness of the light. So that all might believe because of John's testimony to the truth. Verse 8, He was not the light. In other words, John was not the light. Han, can you... Bring it one degree warmer. Just push it up one degree. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John came to testify about Christ. And then this was the light, the true light, as opposed to many other false Christs at the time. This was the true light, the true Christ, that... Coming into the world enlightens every person. Coming into the world enlightens every person. Coming into the world enlightens every person. This is so, so fascinating. The uncreated creator who is eternal and nothing was created without him creating it. So he stands outside of creation, creates everything, and then coming into the world. Here he comes into his own creation. And then it says why he came into his own creation. Coming into the world, enlightening every man. He enlightens every person. You see, because Jesus came into the world, every human being now has enough light to be responsible. Nobody is not going to be held accountable because for somehow they didn't know. No, every person has enough light to be held accountable. John the Baptist and the testimony of that man, he was the first to witness. Now there are millions of witnesses around the world. Nobody is without an excuse. Not one person is left, left without light. And because of this light, every person who ever lived now is without an excuse. In other words, no one will ever be able to stand before God and honestly claim that they never knew that they were lost. No man will ever be able to stand before God and honestly claim that they never knew that they were in darkness. Nobody will ever be able to stand before God and claim that they never knew they were fallen from sin and needed salvation. 
Everybody knows that intrinsically because God gave us all a conscience. God gave us a universe to look at and know there has to be. A creation to look at, therefore knowing there has to be a creator. Nobody can stand and say, well, I didn't know. No, every person will be held accountable for what they do with the light they have. They will be accountable for the decision they made regarding Christ. Whether they accepted Him or rejected Him. You see, the only sin that damns a, man, a human to eternal life, the only sin that damns him is the sin of rejecting Jesus. There is no other sin that throws you in hell but that sin right there, that you rejected Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. My point is this, that you see, hell is filled with sinners like you. How does that make you feel? <laughs> And I, okay? Hell is filled with sinners like you and me. But the truth is, so is heaven. Because the sin of rejecting Christ is the sin that makes that difference. So what are you going to do with Jesus? John is introducing him, explaining him to the world and saying to the world, He came. You have sufficient light. I am a testimony, a witness to testify of that truth, of that light. No one is with an excuse. Could you say this? I am responsible. I am responsible. Okay. Verse 10. Well, let's say this. Even though God is sovereign, say this. Even, even though God is sovereign, even though God is sovereign over, salvation, over salvation, I will be held accountable. For what I did with Jesus. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world came into being through Him. He was now in His creation. And yet, the Gentile world did not know Him. And here's the first category of people who rejected Christ, the Gentile world. Verse 11. He came to His own, and His own people did not accept Him. And here's the category of people who rejected Christ, His own, the Jewish people of the world. But... Verse 12, here comes the good news. Everybody's rejecting Him, rejecting Him, rejecting Him. Here comes the good news. But there's a third category. As many as received Him from the Gentiles and from the Jews, there, was a por there were a portion of people who received Him. It says, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. To those who believe in His name or those who received Him, same thing, same action. Those who received Him or believed in His name, to believe in His name is to receive Him, to receive Him is to believe in His name. To them, God gave the right to His family like an adopted child. I have rights to be part of God's family. So here's what I want to tell you today. That if you find yourself believing, and you go, my heart believes... I believe in Jesus. If you find yourself believing, the Bible says, Paul says, I mean, uh, John says, Jesus then gives you the right to claim, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. To those who believed in His name, He gave the right to be a child of God. Then he carries on and, he, and he's explaining what that means. This third category of people, who are these people? 
who believe in His name. Who are all these people? Out of the Jews, and out of the Gentiles, small portions of people from those two people groups who actually didn't reject Him, received Him, accepted Him, and believed in His name. Who are they? How does Scripture define those who have been born of God? It says in verse 13, those people who were born of God. Those people who were born of God. But in between who were born of God, those are the, that's what he's saying in a bookends, explanations of who they weren't. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Those who were born of God. Can you see that? Those are the ones who went, I believe in His name. Those are the ones who went, I accept Jesus. I'm like, in my family, I'm the, in my Jewish family, I'm the only one believing in Jesus. I don't know, but I'm believing us. Some Gentile, some, some Greek went, yeah, well, this seems foolishness to my whole family, but hey, I don't know, I believe this. Why did that one person believe it out of that whole family of unbelievers? Why? It says it right here. Those who were born of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, they believed in His name and received Him. This is a doctrine. Again, some people will go like, I don't know. I don't know. I wanted to walk through the negative distinctions. He says, so in order to answer this question, the question is on what basis is somebody adopted by God? I mean, who's born of God? Like, born again of God, adopted into His family. What basis, on what grounds is somebody adopted by God? And to answer that question, the Apostle John explains it. He explains it. He says, first, the negative distinctions. He says, those who are born of God are not necessarily those who are born by blood. Got to explain what that is. But he also says, the second negative distinction is, not those born of the will of flesh. Can you all see this? He gives a third one. He says, not those born of the will of man. Again, Just to tell you what that means, when he says not born of blood, he is saying you are born again or you are regenerated or you received this brand new heart of flesh or you've been adopted, you've been born again not by natural conception between, you, between two human beings nor on the basis of your genealogy, your family tree or your, or your bloodline. This is not how God does it. Like in Europe and England, Somebody becomes king because they are in the family, right? And they're next in line. They're in the bloodline. But God's kingdom doesn't work this way, he says. Not of blood. That's not why God birthed you anew. 
That is not how you became born of God. There is therefore nobody that qualifies to be born of God because of their family line. So being born again is not of blood, he says. He says, being born of God, secondly, is not of the will, not of the will of the flesh. In other words, you are born again, you are regenerate, you receive a brand new heart, you are born from above, you are a new creature, a new creation, a brand new heart of flesh, not of the will of the flesh. All right? That's not how this happened, he said. In other words, not on the basis of fleshly, physical impulses between a man and a woman, not on the basis of fleshly or physical desire, neither on the basis of physical effort, human performance, or personal achievement. Nothing you do can qualify you to be born from above, to receive this brand new heart of flesh, to be regenerated, to be born again. All those terms mean the same thing. There is therefore no effort on your end that qualifies you for adoption into God's family. You cannot white-knuckle your way into God's family, so being born again is not the will of the flesh. But then his third negative distinction is, he says you're not born of the will of man. Please understand this. This is so important because the doctrine I'm trying to unveil or develop for you that, that John uses right there in verse 12 and 13, because that's the verse we just got to, so I have to explain it to you. The doctrine John is revealing there is found elsewhere, everywhere throughout Scripture. And it's speaking of this idea that you were born from above, you were regenerated, you were born again, or you might say you received a brand new heart, however you want to coin this process of adoption. Not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That means becoming a new creature in Christ is not on the basis of your personal will. You cannot will your way into being born as much as you did not will your way into be born as a baby the first time. Like you didn't will your way into this world as a baby. Neither do you will your way into God's kingdom, into God's family as a born-again child. You have to understand this because if you, if you see this doctrine backwards, you're taking credit for your salvation and you shouldn't. I'm trying to show you how God gets all the glory for your salvation. This doctrine is powerful. It'll do such great things in your life, just like total depravity did in mine. You see, you cannot will your way into God's family as much as you did not will your way into your natural-born family. You see, Nathan didn't will his way into becoming a marshal. And in the same way, you didn't will your way into being adopted by God. No, God, out of his love for you, adopted you not out of your will to be part of it. So the conclusions here, after looking at the negative distinctions, what it's not, we have to talk about the grounds, the ground for adoption. And our conclusion here is the only, the only stated grounds upon which a person is reborn or made into a new creature is God's will. That's what, it, that's what he said in his verse. He says, those... As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 12, to, whom believe, to those who believed in his name, past tense. Why? Because they were born, they were born of God. It was God's will. It was God's will. The grounds for your adoption is 
this father came and wanted to adopt you. It was his will, not the will of the flesh, not the will of man. In other words, it's, you, you might say not just God's will, but God's choice of you. When a baby is adopted, it's because those parents chose them. When you were adopted, it's because God chose you. 1 Corinthians 1.22, and we're coming in for a landing. 1 Corinthians 1.22 through 24 says, It is foolish. Watch this, everybody. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. They only wanted signs from heaven. Show me who you are. Signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the, Gent- to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. Verse 23. So when we preach that Christ was crucified... So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But, verse 24, to those called by God to salvation. To those who what? Called by who? God. Where unto? To salvation. He called you to salvation. Many people go like, well, it's the calling to start up a company. No, no, no. He called you to salvation. But to those who call to salvation, he's comparing between the Jews thinking it's foolishness, this gospel, the Greeks who look for wisdom think it's foolishness, and he compares it to that. He says, but to those who have been called by God unto this place called salvation, Christ is the power of God. Those are the people that go like, my whole family think it's foolish, but you know what? I believe. Why? Because you were born of God. You are called by God to salvation. That's why in Acts it says the apostles were preaching, and when all those who were appointed unto eternal life believed, when all those who were appointed unto eternal life, when they believed, the apostles went to the next town. All those who were called by God unto salvation, when they believed, they moved to the next town. You see, the basis of your regeneration, according to 1 Corinthians 1.22, is God's call. God's call. God's call. We first saw that it was God's will, God's choice of you. Now we see it's God's call. God's will, God's call, God's choice. This is the grounds for your adoption. You were born because He wanted to birth you. Final two verses, Romans 9.14 says... What then shall we say? Is God unjust? He called some and he didn't call others. Is God unjust? Not at all, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort. It does not Watch this verse. Again, he goes to the negative, you know, uh, distinctions. He goes, it does not therefore depend on human desire. Humans don't desire God and therefore get saved. They get saved, God births them, and now they desire God. It's like a baby being born, suddenly desiring milk. Just because something desires milk doesn't mean it's a baby. Or because it, because it desires milk, therefore we're going to give birth to it. No. Because a baby was born, it desires milk. And because God birthed you, now you are going to desire Him. But most people see it the other way around. They see, oh, well, you know, if you would just start desiring God, He will save you. 
No, no. It's because he saved you. You therefore now desire him. Because you were born of God, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. <sighs> now you desire him. I don't know why I desire him. Because you were born again by him. So he says, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Can we start that verse from the top there, please, Han? Thank you. I just love how Paul answers this. They were saying, well, is God unjust? You mean he saves some and he doesn't save others? What then shall we say? Is God unfair? Not at all, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy and on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire. It does not depend on human effort, but on God's mercy. Why was I born of God? Why was I born from above? Why was I regenerated? Why was I given this brand new heart of flesh that can respond? Why did God open my eyes? Why did God give me the gift to repent? Why did God give me, for by grace you've been saved, to faith in this faith not of yourself why did he give me this faith that was not of myself in order to believe why did he do it he had mercy on you Amen. he showed his mercy to you were the one he showed mercy I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion it's like an owner of a company he has 10 employees and he decides he decides to put his hand in his pocket and bless one and the other nine go like, that's not fair. Well, says who? It's his to do with it whatever he wants to. And this is God's creation and you are not God. And he can do with it whatever he wants to. And he can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he can have compassion on whom he will have compassion on. But every man has received su sufficient light. Everyone has received sufficient proof and a conscience and will be held accountable for it. Yes, God is sovereign over salvation. And yes, man is responsible. You can never say, God, that's your fault. That was your doing. Nobody can ever say that. Verse 17, for God, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, quote, I raised you up for this very purpose, Pharaoh. God says, I raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden for His own purposes. So, we see grounds for your adoption is on God's grounds of it is God's will, God's choice, God's call, God's mercy. He chose to show you mercy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. He chose to show you compassion. Finally, Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 29. He says, For those, for those whom He foreknew, for those whom He foreknew, those very same people, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So He foreknew them. And therefore he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he first foreknew them and then he predestined them. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also then justifies through the cross. And those whom he justifies, he will also, justified, he will also glorify. In other words, 
God's choice to adopt you is on the basis of His foreknowledge of you. Foreknew. Now, the word foreknew, the word foreknew speaks of God. Uh, if you think about it throughout Scripture, when the Bible says, and He knew her, He loved her. That's the actual meaning of the word foreknew. He beforehand loved you already. That, that parent walks into that, into that facility about to adopt the child and they already love that child. They full love that child prior to adopting that child. And that's why they will pay what they're paying and they will go through the process they're going through for years in order to get to the point where that child legally is now adopted by them. They foreloved, and this foreknew speaks of God's prede uh, predetermined choice to set His affections on His loved ones, those He loved. Now I'm trying to clarify to you what John 1, 12 and 13 says. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, the adoption, the process of adoption to those who believe in His name. Those who believe in His name. Who are they? Those who were born of God. Those who were born of God. On what grounds? God birthed you because He willed it. God birthed you because He chose to birth you. God birthed you because He calls you His own. God birthed you because He had mercy on you. God birthed you because He already loved you when He came to complete His saving work in your life. Amen. Amen.